Hi, I'm Chris Whiteout. Welcome to Living It, the podcast where we join experts in the experience of being human. Be bold. Say yes to adventure. Say yes to living it. All right, this is Chris Whiteout. Welcome to Living It. I am honored today to have two great friends, Kevin Hansen, who was my track coach back in the day, and Craig Blanchett, who in a lot of ways was the was a guy who defined a lot of what happened in road racing. 21-time uh, world record breaker, eight-time world champion. Uh, Kevin has coached a variety of athletes, a lot of athletes who have, who have won medals in both the Paralympics and the Olympics. I want to get back because there's a bit, Craig, you are a bit of like a Paul Bunyan of wheelchair racing. And some of this, I want to know what's true and what's not true. So the story that I heard first is that your original training, I think, I assume before you started working with Kevin, is that you'd go to a stoplight in town. And then when it turned green, you would race the car as far as you could until the car pulled away from you. And then you'd turn around and go back and do it with the next car. Is there any truth to that? Did that happen? Is that scientific? What, what was the nature of your training? <laughs> That's funny. It, I, I can't, um, my, you know, being I'm 52 now. And so my memory's not as good as, as it once was, but, uh, when you say that it sounds fun. And so uh, I would imagine that there would be, there would be a time when when you were sitting at the stoplight or whatever and you would race as far as you could and then you just kind of cruise to the next one i don't know if i did uh what was that um stoplight repeats i don't know if i did that necessarily but i can see i don't know kevin do you remember anything like that you were always doing something yeah <laughs> whether okay. there were bunny hops off of uh the steepest hill in eugene or yeah i you know we were you were active yeah, yeah. <laughs> it sounds like a fun, Still are. fun exercise. I know when, whenever we were driving, riding down the road and there was, or down the bike pass, Eugene has these amazing bike paths right along the river. And anytime I was out on an easy ride and a cyclist or something would pass me, it was immediate. Uh, sprint until you can catch the draft. And that was just a like an always, no matter whether it was a hard workout or not, if somebody went to pass you, you you laid down the rubber and and worked as hard as you could to catch them. And so so that was that. But what were the looks that you got at that point when when somebody suddenly looks back and they see you yeah. on their wheel? <laughs> it's just like, well, get away. What do I need to do? Yeah. You know, I need my mace. What's going on? Yeah. It's funny because with the wheelchair, they could kind of hear me coming because that made a little bit no more noise. But with the hand cycle nowadays, when someone passes me and I'm I'm just messing around going slow and they might pass me um, and then I'll creep up on them and they can't quite hear me. And when they notice they're there, I have to be careful because they sometimes will be fairly startled because they might be doing 20, 22 miles an hour and I'll catch them and they'll be like, and then, then if they're not used to drafting, now they're not sure what's going on, whether they should slow down or go faster or what they should do. And they're just they have this panicked look and I'm like, Hey, we're doing fine. How are you? <laughs> oh, 
myself and stuff. It's uh, public relations really is what yeah, it Yeah, you know, about. made a lot of good friends on the trail that way. <laughs> now, when you started, the, the story that I heard as well was that you were about like 105, 110 pounds or something and could bench like 330. Is there, is there any truth to that? My, my best bench press was 410 and I was weighing about... At that time, about 125, 130. When were you 105? Bloomsday, first year Bloomsday, 107. Rafi was 113 and I was 107. <laughs> that first year, 1987. That strength to weight helps climbing hills, I would imagine. It does. Yeah, there was. there's an interesting part of whenever we got into a race that there was, uh, and Kevin and I worked, uh, I mean, long and we just spent a lot of time on the complete package of racing and we were able to build, I was reasonably light compared to people with legs just cause I didn't have legs. And then uh, we spent a lot of time on the wheelchair and getting that dialed in the right size hand rims. I mean, we left no stone unturned and we spent a lot of time with hill repeats. So I would be strong on the hill and the, the, the position of the hand on the hand rim and, and the the rhythm and just all of that, right? And so that's one thing to go up the hill fast. Typically, someone that's fairly light would would could climb, but that wouldn't necessarily descend well. And we spent uh, hours. Um, I mean, one there was one day where it was a complete day of data uh, analysis where it was clencher tires versus sew-ups. It was spoked wheels versus disc wheels. It was bladed spokes. It was helmet, no helmet, long sleeves, short sleeves. It was in e each run we did out on Emerald Hill, we did four, four runs. We took the average and then we, we tracked the data and we found out what was the fastest uh, aerodynamic position. And that that's what I raced with moving forward. And so if I were to get into a race like Peachtree or Bloomsday or something with hills, um, Gasparilla, not so much, right? Pretty much flat. So I didn't really like Gasparilla. Loved Bloomsday, loved Peachtree, loved these races that had hills on them because I knew I could climb well and I could, I could coast better than it. Well, there's only two guys that could keep up with me. Um, everybody else, it was, uh, you know, so it was, it was all, it was unique, I think, to, to climb well and descend well. And so I, I, I just wanted to go as fast as I could everywhere. And so that's, and Kevin and I, we just worked on, uh, I, it's funny because we did this thing at wheelchair camp this last couple of weeks and we talked about um, wheelchair racing and the mindset of things. And we were just talking about a lot of stuff and Scott Hollenbeck was, was talking and and they used to set up scenarios where there was a guy on a, on a hand cycle or it was a guy, and that was Craig. And so they were building strategies specifically to beat us, Kevin. And, and it was like, it was their thing to do of trying to figure out how to, how to get around us. And, and um, I just told Scott how at the time um, I did not like what they did at the time. But I think back on it now, and I am grateful that they we had the East pushing the West, and we both became better because of it. Learned a lot, Kevin. You were always big on the on the technical side of things, as far as I knew. 
were you were you big on that with Craig like starting off and this is this is like blowing out the bearings in your in your wheels and, yeah. and going with a lighter a lighter lubricant and well that's the skiing background Chris you know that it, it's equipment's everything in skiing it's the interface between the athlete and the gear and that's the thing about wheelchair racing is it's very similar to skiing uh, you've got to have a decent relationship with your gear or else uh, you're not going to be successful. Exactly. And, and to back up your skiing background, you were a ski racer, ski racer in college, uh, instructing at the time of your accident, right? Which was at Mount Hood. And yeah, I, I, I went wrong. got into freestyle and before it was called aerials and blew it. <laughs> Back when freestyle was really freestyle, when you got to the top and went, I think yeah, I, I was tried this. Scott, Scott Margrino had uh, broken his neck at Vale or his back rather. And Wes Brownlow had broken his neck. And I think I was like the third SCI from freestyle skiing. Now, Kevin, were you involved when Craig, cause there, it wasn't just technology. There were some mind games that were going on as well, right? So, so what was it at the, uh, the first race? Was it, was it surprise across the, uh, across your back, Craig? Is that, is that what you wrote to the, to the people who might end up behind you? You know, it's, it, it's, it's, when we think back at the whole, it's just been such a, it's been, it's such good memories. I have all of it. it even though when you're in it, you don't realize kind of what it is. Cause you're, you're building it. It's like we're building the plane as it takes off. Like we're just figuring this thing out. We we probably need a propeller. Okay, let's get that propeller on, right? And when we when we got into situations where we, um, I, I literally to start things off, and I'll tell you about the whole surprise thing, is the reason why surprise was was a thing. Is um, I had this old. Um, previous model shadow race chair with the individual eight inch front casters, no tie rod. Um, same one Jim, Jim uh, rode in the uh, 84 Olympics. And, um, and so uh, that, that was the equipment that I had. And, and so I was training in that Kevin was working with me a little bit and um, Kevin invited Jim Martinson to come down with a couple of other athletes uh, from, from up in the Puyallup area and we did a track day and it was, I didn't know really what into that. Kevin can speak more to that. I just know it was playtime at the track and there was these other people with wheels and I thought it was fantastic. Right. And I wanted Jim to see how fast you could go. Yeah. And, and I had no idea cause I had nothing to compare myself to. I was just, I was just having a lot of fun with it and I had a lot of energy still still do maybe racing so, cars maybe you're not okay right, yeah, right exactly and i remember we we did a couple hundred meter sprints and jim was pretty fast and uh, in the hundred meter sprint he beat me just by a couple of inches and we i said i want another shot and he still got me by a couple inches and he's just he was like what well, this guy's like 17 18 years old and I've never heard of him. And he's, I've been training for a while. Jim has, and this guy just show up and he like, what year was this? Oh, this was 86, early 86. Okay. 
And so Jim had been one of the top. I mean, he was a manufacturer. 85. Okay. And, and he was, he in 84, he was the top guy going into the Olympic, uh, the Olympic demonstration event, the 1500. Yep. So he yep. was, he, he, in a lot of ways was the man, you know, when well, he, he probably would have won that race. He had a he had equipment failure during the race and his his right. axle plate broke. So yeah, had he not have done that, it probably would have been uh, a really nice race between him and Paul Van Winkle that year. But you know, so he comes down. He has the ability. Not only is he Jim Martinson, but he's owns a wheelchair manufacturing company that produces wheelchairs. Um, and there was a race called the Wheels of Fire. It was the first race in 1986 in August that had a big field 250 racers and oh, wow. so kevin kevin talked to to jim and jim was setting the start line and the reason why that was so unique is because the start line when they queued us up it was in one one lane uh, or one or two lanes it and it had curbs on both sides so you could get about eight or ten people across and so we have 250 racers and they're all about eight or 10 people across. So you have 25 rows of athletes. So you're in lane in 25, you're, you're 50 to a hundred meters behind. Well, had I not known Jim, my first race, I got no stats on the board. They're like, you figure yourself out there somewhere in the back. Well, Jim places me on the second row right behind him. Which is so Jim, right? I mean, Jim's been a hero for all of us in so many ways. And he's like, yeah, this is the way it's, this guy's fast. Don't worry. He's fast. It's going to work. Yep. Yeah. And, and so prior to the race, Kevin had talked to me about, you know, that there's, there's more to racing than just going fast. That if, if you want to attract sponsors and all those kinds of things, there's, there's a personality that comes along with it. And so that made sense to me. And so prior to the race, I had a T-shirt made that said surprise. I, oddly enough, I spelled it wrong, but it said surprise on the back of it. And, um, and so I thought if I did well, I would wear this T-shirt at the award ceremony after the race. And um, we take off in the race. And the, this, is the, this is a very profound memory that I have. There's, there's times in my life where I'm almost like outside myself going, what the heck is happening here? It's like I'm, I'm watching myself race, but then I'm outside of it thinking, what is happening here? And it's that, that analysis. And I remember we took off, and this is, this is the best of the best. In, as far as I knew, this was the big time. And I never thought of myself as being any really special athlete at that point. And I just remember telling myself, why are we going so slow? I, I mean, think about that, how nutty that is. Cause I just figured if we're in a race, and I think we were doing 15 miles a week, maybe 20 miles a week of training at that point. It was early, early on. It wasn't a lot of training and you know, there was a lot of natural ability there and, and the gun goes off and I'm drafting, which I kind of figured out what drafting was, but it wasn't even something I did a lot of. And I just kept, I just kept thinking to myself, why are we going so slow? And, and I just assumed that there was, I had no idea that I was going to be that, that fast. Cause I, I just had no clue. I was clueless. Kevin just told me I was fast and I was like, all right, well, let's go up and race. 
<laughs> you weren't sure exactly whether Kevin knew all of what he was talking about or well, not. He was just a guy that I met riding down the road on the trail. And, and I didn't know a lot about Kevin. He was, I mean, now I'm just privileged and thrilled that he found me. Right. And that I found him, but, but at the point at that time, I was just, he was, he was a guy giving me workouts and he seemed pretty fun and he had a wheelchair. That was cool. And so it's like, okay, well, sure. Give me some workouts. Maybe I'll do them. If, <laughs> you know, I don't know. <laughs> I had, had done my homework a little bit. Okay. I'd been working with Joe Dowling and had been com compiling, uh, doing the grunt work for International Wheelchair Road Racers Club. I don't know if you guys have heard of it. It was a little bit before your time. It was back in the 80s. Joe Dowling and uh, Phil Carpenter and I think Candace, a bunch of people started it. Anyway, I, I just did layout for a couple of years and I was staring at stats for two or three years. And the first time I had you down at Hayward Field and I was looking at the watch, wow. Your stats were pretty competitive, uh, and we needed something that Jim is a great role model here in the Northwest. But we needed something in, in uh, Oregon, and uh, you and I met up at the right time. Yeah, and so you were you were the one who was who was partially pushing him to this to the surprise. And did you actually wear this surprise T-shirt in the in the race? I wouldn't, I wouldn't that bold. Um, I had ego. I didn't want to have a surprise and then be surprised. I guess oddly enough at the, about the halfway point in the race. And I hear these two guys speaking French. Well, that was, that was Mustafa Badid and Jean-Francois Poitavin. Right. And I'm like, well, those guys don't even speak English. Ooh, how cool is that? Right. You know, and there's George Murray and he's up there and Marty Ball and Jim Martinson or Rafi Elibara. And, you know, these are some solid people but i don't know i just know jim that's it and i barely know jim and we're cruising along and we come up to the there's a cone in the middle of the road it's a two-lane road and it was a natural i don't we never practiced this oh andre Vigier was there too i mean there's just some solid people there right and who's who yeah yeah and so my instinct said go to the front and be the first to the corner so I did it. I just went to the front and I, I started wide and I cut the apex and I faded out wide and I look back and Andre Vigier comes right up to the cone, stops, pulls a wheelie, spins it around, drops the front end down and then starts up again. And I thought to myself, what was that? Like, I, I, I was like, that can't be faster. And I had a 20-yard gap, and my youthful exuberance with, with 15 miles a week of training said, let's break away. It's only a nine-mile race, and you're halfway to the finish line. And that, that was painful. I, uh, they let me stay out there just long enough to hit the first hill, and then and my monkey, the monkey jumped on my back and and people started passing me left to right. I ended up placing fifth, and um, but it was significant f with that field that I was like, okay, well, it seems like I may not be the fastest, but I'm with those guys, and that was pretty fun. And from that race, Jim said, 
he gave me, he built me a new racing chair and he said that he would give me, uh, he would pay for my travel to go to the next three races. And as long as I kept beating him, he would keep providing me with travel. And so I got this next racing chair, uh, the racing chair, and I think I had 12 miles in it before I raced in the New Times 10K. That's the Phoenix New Times 10K. And, uh, and I beat George Murray in the finish line by about three seconds because actually Ke I owe that to Kevin. I owe all this to Kevin, quite, quite honestly. But he said, check out the finish line before the race. And I'm thinking, why would I do that? And he's just, trust me, I want you to get in your everyday chair and go through the last half a mile in your everyday chair so there are no surprises on race day. So I did it, right? I, I listened to everything he said. Well, most of it anyway, <laughs> right? And um, and it came out that was the 10 of us took a wrong turn with one mile into the race. And Jim, Marty Ball, and George Murray all took the turn to stay on the course. We all went off the course. And so we all had to, once we were about a block off the course, we all had to turn around. And we had to get back on the course. And I remember everybody jumped into a pace line and I looked ahead and those guys had 400 yards on us. And I thought, why don't let them go? Like, you know, and, and so I came out of the draft and I chased them down for four miles and I chased 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 and I, chased and, I and it was brutal, but there was something in me that just said, I'm not going to settle for that. And I catch Jim. Jim's dropped off the back. He's in third place. I catch him and I pull up behind him. And he knows we got about a mile to go. And he goes, okay, Craig, you can't stay back there very long. You got to go get him. You got to do this. And I was like, all right. And I come out and I chase down Murray and, um, and Marty Ball. And um, George Murray, it was awesome. He looks over at me and he goes, because I don't even know if he knows who I am. He says, uh, he goes, I think um, we need to all go side by side from here on in because I don't want you slowing us down. And, and I look at him like, I go, you can do whatever you want. I'm, I've been chasing you for five miles. I'm exhausted. I'm drafting. <laughs> and I popped in his draft and drafted him until the, until the last half a mile, like maybe 300 meters. And I came around and I was the first one going into the final few corners and beat him by three inches. And that was the first of nine races that I won in a row uh, from Gasparilla to Peachtree to all, all these different races, Bloomsday. And it, it, was, uh, um, it was just kind of the launch of everything. And so it was, I had to settle in quick and learn very quickly because everything was every race I did was the kind of the first time and it was all it was all new experiences so but it was it was really exciting to even retelling it now it's really exciting <laughs> Kevin you were part of all of this too right I mean you, you're telling him to go look at the finish line this is back to your skiing background isn't it like go and inspect the course know what's going on but you were also part of part of the stirring the pot, it sounds like, too, because there was another T-shirt at this one, wasn't this? Was there one that said, uh, remember me? 
at this at this next race? Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That might have been my wife. She is the most competitive woman in the world. I think she actually was the one that was printing the t-shirts. Yeah, she was the one who did the artwork. She did the Superman on your chest one year. Yep. Yeah. At at uh, pretty fun. Hey, the, the point is, is that uh, any athlete who wants to be competitive has to realize that there's a psychological aspect of sport, and if you can mess with your competitors a little bit, uh, you might gain a couple seconds. Yeah, and this is—I mean, you're talking—you're talking about some big people. Like George Murray was the first wheelchair athlete to be on the Wheaties box, right? So you're, you're beating They're the guy on the Wheaties box. What's that? Yeah, they were our heroes. Yeah, exactly. Still are. Still are. Yeah. And at the time, I had no idea who George Murray was. I mean, I, I learned to respect what he has done. And it's fantastic. But at the time, I don't know, I didn't, I didn't know many people in wheelchairs. Kevin was one of the first people I really met in a wheelchair. So well, it's also so George, you and George were diametrically opposed in terms of disability in some ways, too, right? So you are relatively, you know, have shorter legs, I mean, effectively like a bilateral amputee. Yeah. So no knees and, and not a lot of weight on your on your legs or with your legs. Whereas George, what is like six six or something like that, and a higher level injury and arms that that go all the way down to the ground kind of thing and stuff like that. And he was the guy. I mean, he was the he was the first guy to break the six minute mile, wasn't he? First guy to break the five minute and then then the four minute mile. Four right? minute mile. In Edinburgh is where he broke the broke the four minute mile. So he broke that on the track, the four minute mile. Yeah, I think it was like three fifty nine. Uh, it was right in the right sub sub four. Three fifty nine four. Something like that. Yeah. Now, it, and is there any truth? So the so you did you won the second race, and then did you break a world record? At the third race, the third race was the new time. Uh, the it was a new times ten k, and then the third one, which is still all in eighty six. So it was August, and then November first was Phoenix. The next race was like November fifteenth, and that was the um, that was the Long Beach Half Marathon. You know the funny thing about that, of course, I've had a, a little bit more training in and a little bit more time in this new wheelchair um well it would have been two more weeks worth of training but it was 13 miles and i remember kevin saying you know the first later on in my career that he was saying we started you out at 15 miles a week of training and i think 15 miles is a warm-up nowadays you know it's it's the whole this race was 13 and i was used to doing 15 in a week not in a day not in a whole one race and um at that one I think uh, it was it was remember me. That was the next one, and then we went into our off season. You know, so now it was December, January, February, Gasparilla, and so now Gasparilla takes us down to Tampa, Florida, right into George Murray's backyard, and. Um, of course, he had won the Gasparilla many times. I'm sure he was part of making the whole race happen. Top ends down there. They're creating, making wheelchairs. And um, so we we had, and and uh, so I'm still undefeated. So I, I was fifth, first, first, and now uh, some, some actual training through the winter, some weights and all that. 
and we go, uh, we head down there in February and I had a shirt that said, hurry Murray. I figured hurry rhymes with Murray. That sounds good. Right. And, um, that, uh, it's funny because just on the, the history of wheelchair racing, um, somebody said something about me putting hurry Murray on there and there was some photos and I said, yeah, that was, that was pretty interesting. And then, um, Chris Peterson, Peterson says, uh, Craig was mildly amusing. <laughs> and I just thought, what a great comment. What a great comment. Well, Chris, and, and the backstory on that is that Chris worked with George. Well, Chris and George made top end. Yeah, that was yeah. the tag team. Racing chairs and wheelchairs and, and, and all of that. And you're coming into his neighborhood where he's been the man. And, and George is a fairly imposing looking guy. I mean, he's just... I mean, his shoulders are like, you know, you worry can't make it through a door kind of thing. His shoulders are that big. Well, and, you can be two wheelchairs away and he can still slap you in the face, right? You know, I mean, it's he's got these long arms. Well, and then he's down there with, with Andre Vigier. And Andre was a sponsored uh, top-end guy. And so you've got George, who's fast, in his backyard. Andre Vigier there, very fast guy, Canada. You know, and you got these two guys, I would assume, doing some type of a um, team approach to winning. And then there's this guy from the Northwest. Jim was there, I'm sure. So um, Jim and, and I was there. And I remember Andre got a flat front tire. His left front tire was was flat. That was when we were on four, four wheels. And um, so he was having to work hard. But for Andre, if you wanted to make him more competitive... If he were to crash, look out. If he had a flat tire, look out. I mean, the guy, as more adversity came, he became better. And so he had a flat front tire, which I didn't know this about him yet, but I realized that um, that was that was an issue, and I thought it was an advantage. Um, and uh, thankfully, in that race, it starts off, and you go over an overpass, and then it's flat out and back, brutal. For somebody like me, those, you know, you wind it up to 18 miles an hour, which is just about top speed back then. And you hold that for nine miles and then you finish. That's not my kind of race. I want variety and turns and uphills and downhills and, and all that. And so Gasparilla was torture for me. And uh, thankfully, uh, on the way back, we had to go up and over that overpass with a couple of turns and then a sp uphill sprint to the finish. So I stayed with them until that uphill and dropped the hammer and, and won, uh, won Gasparilla that year. And it was, and then had the shirt, Hurry Murray, and I was mildly amusing, I guess. <laughs> Kevin, were you involved in, in Craig's image with like the, with the pink hair and the earrings and the... No, that was all Craig. That was all Craig. You had no responsibility. I had nothing to do with that. Connie, your wife was no, not involved. It in was that always interesting. We never knew what he was going to show up with dreadlocks or what color it was going to be or whatever. Yeah. But, uh, as long as it didn't affect my performance, at one time I had hair extensions and they were about three feet long. And he's like, Kevin goes, What if those get caught in your wheels? <laughs> and I'm thinking, But they're cool. <laughs> and he goes, Well, Maybe we'll bund them up and put them inside your jersey. And I'm like, okay, that sounds reasonable. <laughs> yeah, and then there was always the disc jockey career. 
Yeah. That, that, that we, we, yeah, we had conversations about that. Cause when you DJ at a club, usually you, if it was an age, you would stay up till 4 a.m. and you shut things down at 4 a.m. And then the next day we were training at, you know, track practices was at 11. And uh, yeah, that was not good. So you were DJing and then going to the track afterwards and getting a hard time from Kevin? Well, yeah, Kevin's like, well, your heart rate's 212. Uh, what's going on here? Uh, are you getting some good sleep? And I'm like, yeah, you know, I just sleep from like 4.30 until noon. <laughs> He's like, no, that's not going to work out so good. You got to get in some sleep before midnight. <laughs> Didn't find out about, about a lot of that stuff until like 10 years later. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's the way they know about work. your affection for milkshakes. Yeah. And milkshakes at the yeah. Simon Cafe. Yeah. Well, when you're 100 and 120 pounds or something like that, you can have some milkshakes. Well, I, uh, the problem was, is I didn't stay 120 very long with the milkshakes. Yeah. And my strength to weight ratio started to not be so favorable. So that was, that was a concern. That's one of the issues. Ted Kennedy noticed that. Yeah. Yep. Now you guys were always figuring out the angles too. And this is, this is, I want to know whose idea this was. So, so peach tree is, <laughs> peach tree is, is, is one of the fastest 10 K races out there. It's, it's, I think it's the biggest 10 K in the country, right. In terms of runners. And so it's in Atlanta, July 4th. And you start out and the first mile is basically flat. And then you go down and it's a, it's a hill that you can hit over 40 miles an hour on that hill. And then it goes up where, where you start, where it's a cardiac hill and all of that, where I'd imagine you really enjoyed that part of the race. However, you were giving away a little bit of weight. So there was a year that you got to the bottom of the hill and opened up two water bottles to eliminate the water so that you go up. So, so, I mean, I, I think, I think the story was that you had decided that you really didn't need that hydration as you were going forward. I, I, I'm assuming that there's a little bit more to that story. Kevin, are you complicit in this? How, what, what, what's the story? Maybe I'll get it from Kevin first. Cause I'm going to let Craig handle this one. <laughs> <laughs> well, funny. You know, it's um, it's interesting because uh, that was a few years into racing and aerodynamics was it. I mean, I waxed my chair before five coats of wax the night before. I, I mean, everything there wasn't a piece of dirt on the chair. Everything was in its place. I mean, it was perfect. Right. And um, tire pressure was, you know, within a pound. I mean, everything was just perfect and um so going in and if you had everything just right and you're going down a downhill so imagine for for those that maybe don't know much about wheelchair racing imagine you get to a certain speed and your engine can't keep up anymore so you have to just put it neutral and and hope for the best so now it's all aerodynamics and it's all mechanical advantages there's no physical advantage anymore and that happened at about 23 25 miles an hour and so somewhere in that zone you just couldn't do much to improve 
the speed. And so you tucked into uh, a, a special position. And of course, long sleeves were faster than short sleeves. Uh, a helmet was faster than hair. Uh, an arrow helmet was even faster than a regular helmet. Um, and then there was the the disc wheels. We were some of the first people that actually had the Mylar covers um, for the disc wheels. And um, going into that particular race, I usually went pretty fast on the downhills. Um, and I wanted to get an even greater advantage on the downhill because if I can get another 20 yards on a downhill when I'm not, when I'm not doing any physical work, definitely you want to do that. Right. It's free. This, this is free time. If, if you can gain mile, gain, gain, gain distance on the downhill, it's free time. And the Mylar, just to explain the Mylar covering. So it was a spoked wheel. And then you'd take a sheet of mylar, which is like, you know, for like air, airplanes, like remote control airplanes. And, and you stretch it over the, over the tire, glue it to the tire, one on each side. And then you take a heat gun and go and heat it up. And so what it ends up doing is have this really smooth surface that, that, that makes a smoother surface to the wind than having all those spokes. Yeah, you don't have spokes. And so essentially it's light very light like a spoke wheel would be but aerodynamic with a smooth surface and so there was a company out of eugene called jdisc and jdisc actually we we collaborated and engineered those wheels uh and then of course lots of other people copied it but um in this particular race if i could beat somebody before the race ever started absolutely and Kevin and I spent a lot of time winning races before they started because of the work that we did on aerodynamics and tactics and just different things like that. And so I added these, uh, you know, a pound of water, I think weighs eight, or I mean, a gallon of water weighs eight pounds. And so I was trying to figure out what kind of fluid or substance besides lead um, that I could put on my chair because peach tree started at a higher elevation and then it was flat and then it dropped down into a canyon and then it started to climb. So I thought if I had extra weight on my chair that it would give me even a slight advantage is still an advantage. And so I taped a couple of water bottles to the underneath of the frame on each side of my chair and I had the valves to open them facing backwards and uh, they were there just for weight but i mean in my mind they were just for weight but technically they i could have drank it it was water right you didn't have mercury in there or anything to make it there was happy. no mercury yeah there wasn't anything toxic i mean if i could have found something i i was told that water weighs is a it's about as heavy as any other liquid that's not toxic so I thought, okay, well, water's pretty easily to come by. I'll just fill these up with water, right? And so we take off in that race and, and we get to the bottom of the hill. Oddly enough, the year before, I coasted away from everybody. This particular year, I didn't leave anybody. Everybody was right there with me. So I kind of pulled off to the side and I jettisoned the, um, the water, which on video, it looked spectacular. It, it looked like a James Bond movie where you were deploying the whatever, the smoke screen. And um, 
oil slick, the smoke screen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was the water slick or something, you know. And um, you know, I, I'm I, I'm fairly certain I won that year, um, but it, I didn't get away on that particular downhill. You know, probably had to work hard on the uphill or something. But yeah, that was the whole story, and it was it was a tactic to add weight. You wouldn't want to add weight into a race where you started on on whatever the start line and then you had to climb and then descend. And so it was like, well, if somebody could had me hand me weights at the top of the hill, well, that would be, but that would be illegal. That would be unsportsmanlike. But if I started with the extra weight and just got rid of it, that seemed reasonable. So that's what we tried at, at Peachtree. The course allowed for that. Bloomsday, Bloomsday would have allowed for that too, but no. You go fast enough at Bloomsday. You don't need to go any faster down that hill. Because <laughs> you have to make a big turn at the bottom of the hill. Yeah. I remember. Or not. Or not. Yeah. Some people don't make that. And if they room, oddly enough, most of the people that crash there happen to be my roommates, oddly enough. <laughs> so don't room with me at Bloomsday. But yeah, that's a whole other story. So, um, Kevin, you have, you have tracked down USA in your background there. Eugene, Oregon is, you know, is, is running town. I mean, it's one of those crazy places still now where it seems like everybody is running everywhere all the time. Yeah. And it sounds like one of the first places you took Craig was to Hayward field. Can, can you tell us what running and then wheelchair racing actually meant? And then we'll, we'll get into Prefontaine as well. Yeah. The thing I enjoyed most about racing was getting out on your everyday road race. Uh, with your neighbors, you know, the, the local 10K that you have on Saturdays uh, or Sundays. Uh, and we really weren't in the track uh, that much. Road racing was really where we were focusing uh, when Craig and I first started working together. But the mile is magical for some reason. And Hayward has a long history of of uh good milers and craig came along right at the time of the invicare cup which was the first and the only wheelchair racing uh circuit well scott sort of had something like that uh with the world series of the america series right? yep. yeah years later right Prefontaine had really, really, Prefontaine had really low attendance. And Craig was a local boy who was uh, achieving some notoriety. And we had a portfolio that was making the circuit up at Nike. It was just going from door to door to door. Uh, and then Craig uh, did well in Seoul. Not as well as he could have done. <laughs> but... Uh, we hadn't really defined that sitting and kicking works yet. I still thought that he could take it from the get-go. And uh, that was the plan. He was going to take it from the get-go. I didn't think that uh, Paul and uh, Moose were going to be that fast. And sit in his draft and, and, and enjoy a nice ride for, for three and a half laps or three and yeah, three and a half laps. They, they left That's you. That's racing. And Craig and I both learned a lot of lessons. That. Yeah. Won many races based upon that painful, <laughs> painful yeah. lesson. So there's no need to, you know, go out and, and win it from the start unless you can. And we have a young man in this country right now who's doing s s stuff similar to what Craig was doing. 
Yeah, yeah with Romanchuk, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing watching it. It is. So so did you get the wheelchair mile into the Prefontaine race? So so to back up for people who don't know, Prefontaine Steve Prefontaine was was one of the preeminent middle distance runners, an American middle distance runner who who had a spectacular image as well. I mean, his whole theory was that I'm going to hurt and if you're going to beat me, you're going to have to hurt more than I hurt. He loved going to the front and and really making it happen. And they do a, a track meet now, which which now attracts the top the top athletes in the world. And Hayward Field, University of Oregon, is also where you know where where Nike effectively started, right? Phil Knight. Yeah, Phil's a pre-blanking classic. Yeah, my my track wasn't drawing uh, the attendance locally that uh, they had hoped or that it had uh, in the early 80s. And your success on television and in, in print media that first year in 1986 got enough attention that uh, Tom, Tom Jordan uh, approached me and John Smith, who is uh, a rec therapist at Sacred Heart Hospital. And uh, he said, John said, well, well, what's it going to take you to race a wheelchair race at uh, Hayward? And I said, money. And they came up with it. And uh, it was amazing. We, the first year we had uh, Randy Snow, who's just the nicest fellow you ever met. Uh, and Rob Courtney and uh, Laverne Hockenbach, uh, all of these great, and Gary, Gary Kerr uh, and Mike Postel, all of these guys didn't really know us or the race from Adam, uh, but they all drove out and, or flew out and, and uh, raced and we did that Prefontaine mile, wheelchair mile from 1987 to 1995. Craig won all of them except uh, 95, Jeff Adams. Uh, somebody got a wild hair and invited him. Who was that? <laughs> so, anyway, uh, uh, Jeff a... came in and and, uh, and uh, sit and kicked. With a little help from Scott, I think. There, there may have been some cooperation there. Well, it was actually, so I'd actually talked to Jeff at one point a while ago about, the, about that specific race because Jeff said he came into it and it was, it was a lot of the quickie people, you know, Scott and it was Briggs and, uh, and Jacob and Neitzel and, and he was the only top end. Yep. And Jeff was in the top end and, and he said Jeff's story, you know, and, and, and I'd imagine everybody has their own story about how these things go. But he said that, uh, that he came up to Craig beforehand and said, Hey, I realize there's some money on the line here. And, uh, you know, do you want to, do you want to kind of work together and make this work? And, and uh, and 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 didn't didn't get the reception that he was that he was looking for, I guess. And and, and Jeff's uh, parting comment, which which sounds a lot like Jeff said, you know, just wanna just wanna warn you, I'm 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 going fast, you know, I'm 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 fit right now. And he was one of the most strategic guys in a, in a race, that's for sure. He he could get out of a box like nobody else. So, 
so so anyway, so so with Prefontaine, I mean Prefontaine to me, I mean that just the Hayward Field just feels like hallowed ground and 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 everything just with with Prefontaine with Nike with all of that. What uh, the was it the first year? When did you break the when did you break the mile record? Because you broke because George Murray had the record at 359.4, which is, you know, even in a wheelchair, it's got to be pretty cool, right? Back in 50, what was it, 54, that Bannister broke the, broke the four-minute mile. Like, that's, that's been a really significant and, and momentous uh, kind, of, uh, kind of record to have. And so, uh, so when, did you, when did you break that, Craig? Do you remember? Oh, it was definitely at Prefontaine, and I think it was a 349.9, and I think it was that first year in 87. It was either 87 or 88, because 88 was the Olympic year, and I was really fit for 88. But the, the photo that I showed early was 87, and then I think this next one here was the was 88, and this was the the Nike one that was in the Nike advertisement. You That's actually 89, Craig. This is 89. Okay. Yep. Because uh, that was the year that Sharon and Jean came out. Marty let, uh, let, uh, Marty, uh, sent Marty Morris, Kevin, Jean Driscoll, uh, Rhonda Jarvis and, and Sharon. Uh, and they all came out and we had a women's 800 that year. It always killed me that we weren't able to get enough funding for a women's 800 in the quad event every but only so many hours in a day it's one of so many things you can do yeah but breaking that world record and and the cool part too i mean i i had no idea that the race directors came to you and said we want to get you into the race we want to get the wheelchairs into the race because that is that's really pretty unheard of. I mean, even road races where you say, Hey, can, can we get into it? Yes. We're going to have you start at the back or we're going to have you, you know, do whatever, or we don't really want you because it might be dangerous. So amazing to me to hear that these guys approached you and, and you had to say, we'll put up some money and we can, and we can make it work. So that's, <laughs> that's a great step in the direction. When did the Superman thing happen? And can you describe the Superman? Cause you gotta, I mean, you have t-shirts, and and it sounds like Connie, uh, Connie, who, who I've I've always thought of Connie as just the sweetest woman, just uh, Kevin's Kevin's wife, but but apparently Connie's the one uh, creating some of this uh, this trouble here. Well, she's just the artist. Yeah, but this was the year that was the Superman, and so underneath this skin suit thingy um, inside of there was was the Superman S, and I. You know, I, I'm sure Kevin is just each time when I would come over to his house, I, I basically lived, you know, lived there. So two, three, four days a week, I was over there at dinner. We were just there a lot. And a lot of the coaching that Kevin did was it was um, it wasn't like, OK, now we're going to do a coaching session. It was sort of just in the mix of our relationship from from driving down to the tracks i'd come and pick him up in my in the in my bus your your purple and white vw bus to match the highlights in your hair right yes it did yep and so we would drive to and from track practice and the things that we did were just um 
I mean, I look back and I just have such fond memories because I didn't know anything better, but we were, I mean, it was awesome. It was just awesome is what it was. And so I, I imagine one day, you know, I came to Kevin and I said, I got this idea. And he probably heard, he probably heard that a lot. Like, okay, tell me about it. I'm thinking about putting a Superman S on here. Cause I think I'm going to break the world record, you know, tomorrow. And he's like, uh, okay, you know, and, but I, but I can't paint it on. Do you think Connie has paint? And she thinks she can paint it on my chest. And Connie's like, well, of course I can. And, and so then it was, you know, painting this S on, on my chest. And then I can't remember whether it was a world record or not, but I remember at the end, you know, unzipping the zip and then just kind of tearing the rest of it open like this. And the crowd just went ape, you know, and it was, it was, um, when I look back at it, I go, what did I really do that? Like, cause to have it on there before the race with the intention of doing what happened and then have it all come together was just like, and it was, it was very much theatrics and it was, it just, it's, it's the rest of what rate, what made racing fun. Cause it was nice to go out there and sweat, but that was just a lot of work. And the rest of this just was the polish in the, the fun fanfare and all of that that was just fantastic what did you guys do for racing like looking back on it, i mean there's a cocky part of it which obviously you're talking about but what did you do for racing i think the thing that i have done the most that i'm the most proud of besides of course the work i've done with the elite athletes like you and craig uh, is the high school athletes and uh, getting them on the bus and getting letters. Uh, letters, varsity letters. That's probably, uh, Scott Hollenbeck and I worked quite a bit in 1990, uh, 2006 with uh, Deb McFadden when uh, Tatiana was having some trouble with the Howard County School District. And uh, that's something that Almost every state now is going to, it gives uh, kids points, I think, for their high school track teams. At least it's getting to be a lot more prevalent. I know, at least in Oregon and Washington now, the athletes can score points. Uh, but Craig, on the other hand, had a huge effect on the sport, uh, mainly because of his visibility and his uh, unabashed compassion for other people. Um, you know, you're talking about Craig loading me in the car. Picture this. We're talking to C4 quad, uh, who doesn't have any triceps. And this is a double amp who pops him up on the back wheels, bounces him into a Volkswagen bus, drives him to the track, lets him put him through the, the workout. Uh, uh, then takes me, takes care of me and brings me home. I mean, Craig took care of me as much as I took care of him. That's an awesome moment. Yeah, that's great. Craig, what do you, what do you think about it? What do, what do you feel like you did for the sport? You know, it's, it's, uh, I've never heard Kevin say that, but, but as he's describing what, what he just described, yep. I, I remember back behind him, you know, popping him up and getting him up in there. And it was just, it was just the way it was done though. It was, it didn't, it didn't seem weird. It just seemed like, well, this is what we got to do. You know, let's go, you know? And 
I don't know. It just, it just seemed second nature. And what I guess the, the thing that I would say that I would bring to, um, and I'm going to use some terms that hopefully won't offend people. What I brought to disabled sports was, was, was sport. It wasn't disabled sport. It was sport. And my, I wasn't, I was born this way. So I'm as normal as, as I've ever been. I've never had to go through, I haven't, I haven't had to endure a crisis or a, a life altering moment. Like many people that I race against do. This is just, oh, I want to do this. Oh, well, I want to run a marathon. Well, I need wheels. Okay, well, there's these wheelchair things. Hey, maybe that'll work for me. And so I got in the wheelchair thing and it became a way for me to express myself um, athletically and, and, and just, just to, to find my voice in the world, but it was never a disabled thing. And I always, uh, uh, I always hated when they called me, um, a disabled athlete because I wasn't a disabled athlete. I was a wheelchair racer, right? I was racing the crap out of these wheelchairs, but what's, you know, what's it have anything to do with disabled, not disabled. That was that was sort of like um, it was seemed obvious and relevant to other people, but it seemed irrelevant to me. Was, why does that have anything to do with anything? We're out here racing. Come on, let's race. And for me, it didn't matter whether your body worked normally or whether you had a paralysis. The wheelchair was the unifier. You put someone in a wheelchair and let's go work it out. Let's go race. And so if anything, possibly what my contribution, uh, you know, to the sport was, is to, um, was to not disable it, to, to, to just allow it to be all that it is just awesome sauce. And there's people that watch it and they go, oh, isn't it great that those people can have an activity right and then you show up and you tear their face off by because you're so fast and they're like what was that and that was fantastically fun to do you know and it just elevated it because it was like the you it's almost it's almost like the wheelchair disappeared and and that's i think was my it's been my life's goal that when people meet me the wheelchair disappears very quickly and it's just not an issue. And I, people comment to me about that all the time. Well, they'll make a comment that they clearly don't realize I'm actually in a wheelchair and their comment reveals it because they for, they forget whatever that is. And if you, I've never really seen the wheelchair as a disabling it's, it's, you know, people today comment, you know, um, they, they need to go get some water and I'll pull out my water bottle, which is on my wheelchair. And I'm like, you should get one of these things, man. They are fantastic. <laughs> right. And so what, so it's, it's sort of that, that idea that this wheelchair is a superpower, not a, not a, um, it doesn't hold me back. It allows me to be fully. You're part man, part wheel. Yeah. I don't know that that people that use wheelchairs always think of that. I mean, if I can't really say what other people think, I just know that I I never thought of this as disabled sport. I thought of this as sport, and then we happen to race wheelchairs. 
and it was fantastic. Which which is interesting because the uh, certainly I, I guess I guess we've got to go. I'm going in two different directions here, but I'm going to go to the Nike direction first. And and Nike confirmed a lot of that, right? I mean, Nike in terms of in terms of marketing, uh, in terms of the ad that that you know that they did with you, where you're doing your cross training and you're you're playing racquetball and you're lifting and you're you're playing basketball and you're doing whatever and they don't show anything below the waist until the end. And you're like, Oh, okay. Wow. Like this is, this is a guy who's melded with his, with his wheelchair. It, it's part man, part wheelchair. And, and it's cool. It's fast and it's cool. And in some ways it's, it's more evolved in other ways. It might all, it might even be like mythical. In some ways, you know, I mean, you're your centurion and kind of thing, you know, you're like, you're like half horse, half man kind of deal, you know, and it's like, okay, all right, this, this really works. So what was, how did, how did that work? Kevin, you said that you guys had been, had been floating around a proposal at Nike and, and when did it, how did it happen with Nike that they said, yeah, we want to be a part of this? Well, there were people at Nike who wanted to be a part of it from the beginning. And they were the ones who were uh, moving the portfolio from office to office. A uh, fellow named Juan Fiat, who was a wheelchair athlete here in the Northwest, an athlete from Colombia who uh, ended up residing here. And he lives up in Olympia now. Anyway, he was the one who was really passing it around. Uh, he was an IT guy for them. And then Keith Peters, uh, who did the Cascade runoff, he was the race director for that race in the Portland Marathon. Uh, was bumping into Craig regularly, and uh, Craig was getting a lot of press. I mean, and when they were they'd uh, do road race of the month, Craig would be the one with flat tires, uh, just riding on two wheels, the left wheels or the right wheels, depending upon whichever side of the chair flatted. Uh, you know, getting uh, a lot, a lot of airtime. Uh, then finally. Uh, when Craig went to Seoul and got the bronze, on the way back, rumor has it, and I think you told me this, Craig, weren't you seated next to Kathleen Marshall? We, while we were there, we went to a dinner with, with, um, with Kathleen Marshall, which is, she's um, the big TV producer. And, and I basically, when I was in Korea, um, I got connected, because they had the wheelchairs which were kind of in a, in a separate location. And then there was the Olympic village and I did as whatever I could to be at the Olympic village around the Nike people and just around the rest of the athletes as much as I could. Cause it just made sense to me. And when I went and did my daily warmups and workouts, I went to the Olympic stadium where all the other athletes were training instead of being bused two hours away to some track out in the middle of nowhere. And I just, I just, that's what I did. And so I made relationships and connections with some people at Nike and got invited to the Nike, I don't know, the, the Nike dinners and the Nike different types of things. And so it was just meeting people. And then it's probably two months after I came back from a bronze, we had a phone call and Kevin and I drove up to, up to Portland and uh, we had a meeting and then we had a, a two-year contract that, that was renewed four times. Uh, for a total of eight years of full sponsorship with Nike, and that that was fantastic. What a great! That's the, that's the pinnacle. Yeah, yeah. I mean, 
you know, it's interesting because when you are sponsored by Nike, you're only sponsored by Nike. If you see, if you will never see multiple, multiple names, I might have a helmet sponsor or I might have a chair sponsor, but on my person, one name and one name only, and that was Nike. And so, but it came with a lot of benefits and a lot of, of advantages. And plus it was Nike. I mean, it was fantastic. I, you know, I just found a, a photo of the Prefontaine classic with the Superman. Um, it's, it's a crazy photo, but you can see it on the chest there that a little bit of the red, the blue and the yellow. Okay. But it was, you know, it's just all that stuff with, with Nike. It was just so great. And then, interestingly enough, the way the commercial came around is they had flown me down to Southern California for a, another commercial where they had different things that were happening. And then there was one section, like a two and a half second section where they had wheelchair racers coming down an overpass. So I was in that shot with a bunch of other people, but then I found out where the daily shoots were for the basketball scene, for the all these other scenes. And I just drove up there and sort of got through security and just hung out with the people. And and one of the one of the writers at Wyden and Kennedy saw me playing basketball with people, whatever, just horsing around. And they they just saw me sort of just inserting myself into the mix where all these other things that were happening for this other commercial. And then about a year later, we got a phone call that said, we, we have this idea of this commercial where you've been working out for quite a few years now and you're doing all these sports. And then it was a whole cross-training thing. And so that commercial came out of just, just being aggressive with, I love people, so just being aggressive, but wanting to be out there and around people. And these were cool people. And I wanted, I was fascinated with all that stuff. And so it's, it's sort of like you just, you earn your way in and nothing was given to us. We earned it. And you demonstrated what could be cool to them. That's often the thing is that, that if you force them to, to sort of come up with the whole creative on their own. But if they look at it and go, oh, well, we could do this and we could do that. And I've seen him do this and we've seen him do that. Now, just to be clear as well. So you were, you were talking about coming out of Seoul, 1988. So Seoul, the Olympics in Seoul, Korea, in, in, in South Korea in 1988. And there was a demonstration event of the wheelchair 1500. So, so they would, and for the women, they did an 800 and it was just the finals. So it was eight athletes who made that finals. And you did all of your prelims, all the, the quarterfinals, the semifinals elsewhere, but eight people made it to that event. And that's the, that's the event where you, you know, where, where you connected with a lot of those Nike people. Yeah. Was, was that association what you, what you hoped it would be? And, and did you go into it with any expectations? You know, did you did you expect to become like a you know a household name? Did you expect to, you know, change the the path of history? You know, like I mean, you you, you do have dreams, right? And and these might be the quiet dreams that you don't share with anybody else. But yeah, you know, I think just like when I showed up and and Kevin essentially found me writing by my my mom's house when I was out 
tending a garage sale and I chased him down the road. I didn't know where it was going to come from. It just seemed pretty, he seemed cool. He had a wheelchair. I got a wheelchair. Hey, what's your name? My name's Greg. You know, literally that's how it happened. And uh, he's like, well, why don't you come? I live around the corner. Why don't you come over? And so I came over and we started talking and, you know, and so same thing when I show up to my very first race, I mean, I had high, I, I was excited and, and curious. And I just was like, we get to race now. Let's see what happens here. And I didn't know what, I mean, I hoped that I would be fast and I was gonna die trying. And it turns out that I was. And when, when, when we went to Korea, it, it, it just seemed like if I hung around with the the small group of wheelchair folks that we had, I was the only male on the U.S. team. There was three other women. They were fantastic people. But it just, there was something, and I want to tread lightly here because, because I've never been through rehab and I don't have, my story's just different. So I'm not saying it's better or worse. It's just different. But I, I didn't, because of my experience of just growing up and learning how to live this life, learning how to figure out how to work this body, I, I, I had a different perspective that people that had one life where they walked and then tragedy and then now wheelchair life and working out all the learning how to make that body work. And so, so totally just there's not a better or worse. It's just different. And you grew up getting around on a skateboard and things like that, right? I mean, that's kind of mode of transportation. Yeah, it's just, I was figuring life out. I got my first wheelchair, I was in the eighth grade. And before that, it was a skateboard and some artificial legs and just different things. And I, I'm just sort of like nothing really, really, I can't say that I'm really surprised by anything in this world, but I am eager and open and excited for life. And And so I just thought, I want to be around all these other athletes and Nike's cool. So let's figure out how to be around Nike. I, I mean, it was kind of that. Interesting. And it, and it's interesting <laughs> in that perspective, that perspective that you have where, you know, this is, it's congenital. This is, this is the only body that you've ever known and you get an opportunity to go really fast doing this. And like, all right, this is cool. And these other guys are going really fast too. So we get to race against each other. You raced in road races, you raced in the Olympic events. Do you guys ever, ever regret that you didn't race in the Paralympics? I wish Greg raced in the Paralympics in 96. In Atlanta. I wish he'd been on the team when you and, and Matt and uh, Sherry. That would have been fun. I had about nine athletes and I didn't have Craig. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because in 88, the Paralympics weren't really a thing yet. It was, it was still something else. I don't know what it was called, but it was something different. It was in Korea and um, I chose not to race. I don't know. I, I, I can't say my, uh, the way that I thought about this was right. Looking back on it now with some more maturity. So just trying to not offend everybody. Um, but I just I, I thought that there that that some of those games were disabled, and I wanted sport, sport first, disability or whatever ability second, sport first, and um, and so I looked at it a little differently, and I thought, well, this is the Olympics, it's the exhibition, 
why would I race in the disabled Olympics? They're disabled, right? It's, and this was my thinking back then. Secondary is that uh, the Olympic team got an invitation to go to the White House and meet Ronald Reagan and be in a photo with the entire Olympic team. And I was like, yes, please. I would like to be next to Matt Biondi and Flo Florence Griffith Joyner and you know all these other stud athletes. Why? Of course, I would want that. And I would have missed that had I went to the the Paralympic, the pre-Paralympics, whatever it was that year. And then '92, I had every intention of doing the Olympics and the Paralympics, but there was some there was some bad choices and some different things that happened. And I finished right outside the qualifier. And then again in 96 had a, a new baby and just uh, Scott threw a, a psych job of a lifetime on me right before the start line and, uh, and psyched me out of my shorts. Did that happen at the trials in Atlanta? The, the psych job? That was at the trials in Atlanta. Okay. And the, the uh, yeah. So, so you got out of the U S trials. But out of the U.S. group. Oh, I didn't even. That was the U.S. trials. I didn't even make it out of the U.S. trials, and I, I went home basically with nothing because I only wanted to qualify in the fifteen hundred, and I wasn't really. I didn't even sign up for any other event, and all of that I would have. I I would have raced my socks off if I had feet that wore socks. I would have raced my socks off. I mean, racing is fantastic. And there was some races in 91, there was a race in, in New York and um, it was a qualifier for the 92 games. And I went there and I raced everything. And there was 100 meter, 200 meter, 400 meter, 800 meter, mile, 5K. I didn't do the 10K. And in that race, in, the, in that track meet, I won every prelim, every semifinal and every final in every event that year and it was epic which is something for, for people listening because there might be some people who don't realize because you know I, I sat next to carl lewis at a at a dinner one time and i asked him what he was doing now he was long long retired and he said i don't go for a jog he said i'm i'm a sprinter i'm not a, <laughs> i'm not a runner and uh, you know and, and i kind of you know that was kind of my question but it, but in a wheelchair you can be competitive from a hundred meters through a marathon. As long as you can start, as long as you can get up to top speed, you know, if you can accelerate and, and those kinds of things, you can be successful over a wide range of, of events. And, and it's not necessarily the different body types that you get. You know, you look at a 1500 meter runner in the Olympics, you're like, okay, that guy is most definitely not doing the hundred meters and exactly vice versa. So, this is a photo here of the 1991 games, and this is the 100 meters, and this is second place here, Mike No, right? And when I look at this photo, I, I look at their equipment here, and they got a lot of stuff going on here. And I look at this chair, disc wheels, long sleeved shirt, full skin suit. You look at the chair, and there is not anything on that chair that is not required for it to actually run. It is perfection. And it shines. You notice how much it shines? That's because there's five coats of wax on it. And everything is dialed in to the utmost T. And that was the 100-meter gap. I don't know, probably getting close to the finish line. But 
you know, and, and so there's these photos of, you know, this is another, this was probably the 5,000, you know, Mark Kessie, uh, all the gang here. And, you know, now this race here, I did, I, I didn't have the disc wheels on, you know, but it's, it's, um, all these little components that Kevin and I, I mean, we were always testing and always tweaking and always doing everything we could so that, um, so that we could go fast everywhere. And yeah, if you're fast enough, Today, you have people that specialize in the 100 meters, and they probably aren't winning the marathon today, you know. Uh, but back then, I mean, I loved the sprint, and I loved to – I just love to race. I still do. I just love it. <laughs> and, and you still ba – even back then and now, you have some of those people who are specific – 100 200 meter people who you know who, who will sit entirely differently who will sit more upright or whatever and uh you know the, the guy from finland now who who uh i can't think of his name at the moment but uh but who sits almost almost directly upright as his feet out in front of him and and just you know can can get out of the hole can get out of the start but but you do have some of those other people like a roman chuck like a like a David Weir, some of these guys who can go and win like at a world championships in a hundred meters still, what do you guys make of, of wheelchair racing now? What, what do you think of it? Well, it's interesting how body types have changed. I mean, we still had Tom Sellers and big guys, you know, uh, Franz, uh, Krieger, uh, with Josh George, everybody started getting a little bit smaller, it seems like. There are some guys who are getting smaller, definitely, you know, but, but I mean, yeah, I mean, some of that's, some of that's smaller and it's all relative as well. Right. I mean, it's smaller. It's like, okay, some of these congenital guys or guys who had an injury earlier in life who have much smaller legs and some of those kinds of things. As the advantages, you know, we all have different, different advantages we have to take advantage of. But you look at it as well, like a like a Brent Lakatos, who's who's a T53, who's a higher level injury, and and you look at the way that he sits. I mean, he's he's sitting closer to the axle. His butt is closer to the axle. His his back is almost completely flat. He's he's deep in his in his wheels. But he as as what's a T you know what was a T3 a T53. So the higher level era. Mm -hmm. He's world record holder in the 1500. Yeah. Which is at, at like 251 or something like that or something, you know, it, it's, it's fast. And it's 250. And, awesome. I think is what it is. <laughs> that's what it is. It's amazing. And, uh, but then you look at like, was that said in Switzerland? Did he set it in Switzerland? I'm not sure if he said it in Switzerland. He might have. I mean, it seems like what a track. Cool, you know, track every that's where most things happen i'm right? sure everything was perfect for that time yeah exactly but he probably he had to be in a pack as well too right so yeah. who wants to throw themselves on the sword and let somebody else go for a nice ride in your draft and then pull around in the last hundred meters but mm -hmm. it also looks more tactical now in that everybody is going so fast mm -hmm. and that's six feet of the chair is is a big big gap you know if you're trailing behind and then if you have to go the six or seven feet out on the outside not that it hadn't happened 
before, but getting that pole position and, and like David Weir, I think in, uh, in London was just a magician at getting, getting sort of the spot right on somebody's shoulder and knowing that he had the 400 meters to go and do it over, over everybody just to like, thanks for the ride. See y'all later. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, and, and looking at Roman Chuck now as well, just thinking he's a guy who is young in Rio. Yeah. Yeah. I got to meet him in Arizona. Uh, and I think that was the meet at the desert challenge. And I think that was the meet where Casey raced against him in the 1500 Casey McAllister. I don't know if you've met Casey. He's a double amp who's real uh, prominent in the Spartan races right now. Uh, Reebok athlete. <laughs> anyway, Daniel was amazing. And he beat uh, Casey. And I think that's when Casey decided to go full on into Spartan racing and not continue to try it for the Paralympics because Daniel was a forest back then. And I had a feeling that was three years ago. Well, he broke the 800 meter record there uh, the, in, in Arizona, which I think is about, I think it's 130 that he went and it was, it was last year or the year before. So you know, getting out and averaging, it's 130 or 132. I want to say it's 130, and it might even be below it, but it's but it's just absolutely crazy when you just think of just averaging averaging 20 miles an hour. Well, how do you hold that corner? I mean, getting that your compensator, it's like getting it to hold the corner at that speed is is a thing of art. I mean, that's like 20 plus to the corner, and it's like your chair is going to want to just go straight. <laughs> you know? Well, it's, it's, we always talked about like where the wheelchairs caught up to the runners. And it's kind of like, we, we don't do as fast the 400 meters and you think, okay, well, well, so is it, is it like 600 meters? And it's like, no, it is immediately after the finish line of the 400 meters. <laughs> and that's pretty much it. I mean, it's like, okay, boom, you, you catch up and you're, and you're past whoever, because whoever's running the 400 meters, they're not going to keep going. When you can coast the next in a mile, you can coast the next two laps and still beat the runner. Just, I mean, if you've gone that fast for the first, you know, two, it's, it's remarkable too, because um, it used to be around the 800 mark when I, you know, back in the prefontaine days. And now it's the 400 meter mark and it's just, you just have so much steam going. I mean, it's just so, I don't know, Witzer racing is like poetry to me. It, it, it's such a beautiful art form. It's just so awesome. Can we talk just a little bit? We're going to transition because we need to wrap this up a little bit. But, uh, but if we can transition a little bit, Craig, one of the hardest things that I've had to do was to retire. Hmm. retiring from sport and you didn't go through the traumatic experience of, of having an injury. Right. So you have an injury and, and most people think, well, that's the worst thing that could possibly happen in your life. Like you had this life changing injury. You went from walking to not being able to walk. And to me, then I was, I was scared. I was like this life that I see in the hospital could be my life moving forward. And I don't want that to be a part of who I am. So I went immediately back to school. I raced that following summer. I did my first 10 K if you can call it that I, I did it in an hour and 10 minutes. So it was not fast. Uh, and I started ski racing that, that next winter and went to nationals and did everything. But, but how, how has been 
the the challenge for you of going from going from breaking 21 world records going from from nike going from being in publications to to being a, a regular ordinary person in some ways has that been a a real challenge and and now you're coaching which i'm imagining you're taking some of your coaching from from your coach here too oh absolutely oh we just we just did the uh the 600 meter sets six four three two one and i did it online with the guys the other day and they were all afterwards we did four sets of 600 meter sets and they i was like this is a fun one my coach kevin he he uh he, this was one of his favorites we were done with that and they were like ow <laughs> so it's been fantastic to do um, a lot of the, the workouts that we, the 800 meter re, uh, repeats, all these kind of things that I learned from Kevin. The, um, but yeah, so helping other, you know, for me, it's been, uh, I mean, last year I won the off-road world championships for off-road hand cycling. And so I'm still getting out there and mixing it up and playing in new playgrounds, if you will. But, um, the, uh, for me, just like back then when, when I, I have certain desires and I'm competitive, it's almost like I have a desire without an expectation. I, I don't know how to explain it, but for now I'm just enjoying where I'm at. And, and Kevin taught me a couple, he taught me many things, but he said, what time is it? And the answer was now. Right. And so he's just, and I think, I think the moral of that question was to live in the moment and, and, and enjoy it. And so I've been able to do that and just really enjoy the next thing or what, what's happening now. And so I love working with other athletes. I have a, my own company now called Crave Optimal Health, and I partner with, with anyone who wants to, to develop, a, we call it transformation coaching, where they want to actually change the way their life is and and that's on a lot of levels and over the last three years i've started really connecting with people that are of the you know wheelchair the the i like the adaptive adaptive community i think that's a fantastic word rather than the disabled community but the adaptive community and so i have a lot of people that i now get to partner up with and 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 just build into and help transform the way they think and their bodies and all that and so um so it's it's just an absolute blast and i just i just sort of take take the next adventure and i just ride it you know and it's just been fun it's been fantastic i'm in fantastic shape at 52 covid covid launched a whole new thing where we do online chris you've joined us and and i've become a perpetual invitation person and i'm just inviting people to come to community and we've been doing interval workouts online three days a week for the last four months i'm in like smoking shape right now and i love it right and so it's just been you know the the idea is when you see something come along that says i can't one of my philosophies is instead of saying i can't just change the words up a little bit and when your mind says i can't do fill in the blanks just change it up to how can i and what happens that there's a really powerful thing that happens in your mind where you go from a world that has a wall and when you say how can i you move beyond that wall 
and you see things you could never see before because you closed off the conversation. And for for the way that actually practically works is you transport yourself. It's like you've 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 you're now on the other side. And when you say, if I could do this thing, what's the next thing I'd need to solve? And you just start solving problems. And if you solve enough problems, you'll be there. It'll happen for you. But if you say I can't, which will be probably be your default, you'll never do a lot of the things that you want to do. I've got to ask the quick follow up on that. But so because because you were the guy with the with the Superman emblem on your on your chest, right? So how can how can everybody else relate to you? Because it's I mean, if you're Superman, you're unrelatable. But if you've gone through struggles, then people can look at you and go, oh, okay, like this guy actually might know what's what I'm going through. What, what have you gone through that you can relate to them to say, hey, look, this is like, we're, we're, we're human. Sure. Really. Because you have to be human. I mean, Superman, Krypton, right? So not so much on the human side. Right. Yeah. And definitely I have a lot of uh, I've had a lot of challenges, you know, almost losing my marriage at one point. Um, I was in an accident racing in 2014, down through a corner, hit a car, broke everything, broke my whole shoulder. Um, I had to, had to work through the recovery from the injury. And then I realized I needed total reconstruction of my shoulder. So I had to do the surgery and then have the reconstruction of that quite honestly, it cost me my wheelchair racing career. So I had to basically, it was taken from me rather than something I chose to give up. And so that's, that still is pretty tough actually, when I, when I actually think about that. And so, um, so there's, you know, we all go through our stuff and I just don't, I tend not to focus on the things that I can't do. And I focus on the things that I can do. And, and, um, uh, but there's lots of stuff I can't do. I can't ride a motorcycle. Well, I can ride it. It's just the stopping. That's the problem. Maybe right? the cornering too. You might slide right off of it. Cornering is okay. But yeah, so there's lots of things you can't do, but it's why you see what you focus on. And if you focus on the things you can do, you will do lots of amazing things in your life. Exactly. But you had to, I mean, when you started this coaching program, you you told me that you were you were unemployed and 50 pounds overweight. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, that's a fairly decent problem, there's a, there's, right? There's a nice, a nice shot of that, right? <laughs> that's you. <laughs> yeah, said, thank you. Yes, that's me. <laughs> yeah. That's, wow. That's you who had, who had eaten the 105 pound version of yourself, apparently. Yes, exactly. And, but but that's the stuff. I mean, that I think that's the relatable stuff. We're we're on a bit of a human journey right now. And the thing yeah. is that no no matter who we are, the struggle is often the things that we can relate to with other people. Is, sure. Hey, I, 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 can I learn from you? you know. Well, and the, the idea is I don't I don't want to. It's not that I want to ignore my shortcomings, and there's plenty of them. My personality type is I don't want to dwell on them. I want to build something and go after something I can do, but they're absolutely there. I mean, I'm, I talk too much. I'm pretty self-centered. Um, you know, uh, I'm, I'm 
reasonably inconsiderate. I mean, there's there's a bunch of crap uh, that's there, right? And um, you know, we all have that stuff. But but so bring all your stuff and let's go do something awesome. Bring bring all your baggage. We'll stick it in the trunk and let's go do something awesome. And and you have you have the the tremendous enthusiasm that brings people into that. Like this sounds really hard, but Craig's pretty excited about it. So <laughs> yeah. it sounds like it should be good if I can, you know. I mean, he's excited about it, so I should be excited. Let's be excited instead of being scared. Kevin, you've you've said that you always wanted to just always thought you'd be a coach. Yeah. What does that mean? We'll let you get out because because this is uh, Craig is coaching now, but. Well, why did you always think you'd be a coach? Well, number one, I always wanted to share things that I dug. I mean, if, if I'm into a sport, I want to share it with somebody. Uh, if I hear some music I like, I want to share it with somebody. Because uh, it's got to be the best. I mean, I like <laughs> it, you know. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's probably... The sharing part of it, the sharing part of it, but you're also a technical guy. You start getting into the, into like, how does this work and how to, how can we make it work a little bit better? Well, that's just the devil's in the details. And if you don't take care of that, uh, you know, we all have to develop technical skills. Uh, and it's really important if you want to be an athlete, uh, even especially if you just, so you're on, Wada's list so that you can be available for your appointment when they show up to test you. Uh, I can't believe athletes are even having problems adjusting schedules for testing. Right, for the, for the World Anti-Doping Association, which is kind yeah. of important to have a level playing field. But I'm just pulling it up right here. There's been so many of them, but this is just one that I'm just, I love this, this photo. Kevin and I were down down in California and we were on an, at a Nike tour thing and we were just, I think this might've been for the commercial. I don't know what it was, but it was just. Yeah. Liz Dolan was in the front seat. Yeah. And it was just like, that's, that's it right there. You know, peace. It, it, and it's just so many fond, fond memories of the, but we were so young. Oof. Exactly. That was a fun trip. Rafi met us at San Diego State. Yeah. So and in the back of a limo, which I'd yeah. imagine for you, Kevin, Getting in and out of a limo is is it's fun to be in a limo, but getting in and out might be a little bit more of a challenge too. Now with Craig and uh, Connie around, yeah, <laughs> it all worked out great. Okay, they can get me on anything. Sure did. Thank you guys so much for for joining me on this, for being who you are, for making the world a better place, and and for sharing some of your journey. Which which looking back on it, crazy amazing journey that that just, I think, just brought so many people along too. So so thanks a ton and look forward to catching up with you uh, in the future. All right, guys. Good deal. Thank you. Thank you guys. Yep. Thanks a ton. Thanks, Kev. Good to see Take you care. again.